Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 as we continue uh, looking at this portion of Scripture. The temple has been finished, and here Solomon, King Solomon is uh, dedicating the temple, and we're in the section now uh, where uh, we're looking at Solomon's prayer. Uh, this really is the central part of this passage, um, as we pointed out last week, that uh, it, it's much of a chiasm that it kind of all builds, uh, starts in the ends of the people gathering, people leaving, and then builds up to this moment of Solomon's prayer. And this is the largest uh, chunk that we have in this whole passage that emphasizing what is here. And, and we began last week looking at Solomon's uh, prayer. And uh, it began with Solomon praising the Lord, praising his name, praising his uniqueness, praising God's character, praising God's works, Solomon's petition, and then Solomon's plea. And that's where we, in verse 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant praise before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house and the place which you have said, My name shall dwell there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant into your people Israel, when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So here we have this opening understanding of, of Solomon's plea, of him turning, and he understands that this place that he has built, this holy of holies, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, cannot contain the creator of heaven and earth. That this is merely a place in which signifies God's dwelling with his people where he has placed his name there. But that God is still in heaven, enthroned above the heavens. And that the prayer goes through this place so that God hears and answers his prayer in heaven. And what we see here is God's name. His covenant name he has used three times before Yahweh, the God of Israel. This prayer is directed to God. That this house, this place as he refers to it, is a house of prayer. Again, remember Jesus as he enters into the temple and he casts out the money lenders. What does he say? That this house is meant to be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. They had taken what this purpose of this place was and twisted it and distorted it. And Solomon here is praying with his arms lifted. At some point he hops down on his knees. And this is the last thing that they potentially could have seen if they closed their eyes. Here the king standing before this place, this magnificent structure with this dark cloud around it. That there are his God's eyes should be towards this house. And the list of prayers that we go through focuses on the people praying towards this house. 
then God listens. In verse 29, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place which you have said, my name shall dwell there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. In verse 30, and listen to the plea of your servant and to the people of Israel. And pray towards this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear. So here Solomon is, is praying towards God, asking God that he might be able to be heard. But lastly, the central thing in all of this is God forgives. So what do we see in these seven pleas? We'll begin looking through them and see if we can make them through our way through these tonight. Now, when we come to a large portion of passage like this, it's important to be able to help see the structure. As you see the structure, you get to see the emphasis of how the prayers are focused. You don't get sucked or or lost in the weeds. So how, when we come to a passage like this, when we start reading a passage, how then do we understand and uh, begin to focus on the structure? What I think one of the major keys that you see are small little patterns, especially in a passage like this where we see seven things, repetition over time. Before we get to see the pattern, I want to explain how I got to seeing this pattern. Basically, it's quite simple. You read through the passage, and then you read through the passage again, and then you read through the passage again. And as you're reading, you're trying to understand if there's anything that is repeated throughout this time. So as I look through it, I start taking a highlighter or a pen in my journaling Bible, and I start underlining key things that I notice coming up. Sometimes when we read, we might look at the words, but we're not actually processing the words. So sometimes reading it out loud, you might be able to get to see that repetition. But as I started reading through this, I noticed things like this house being used in every single time. And then you got to start to see not only this house, but the prayer is directed towards this house. And then you start seeing more repetitious phrases like key words when you pray or plead your name. And then you see this understanding of when you hear in heaven. So we get to see this pattern that we see within this time. And we have all the pattern. We have all the components that we see in the pattern. It begins with when or if a situation that a person or the group, the nation of Israel has found themselves in. When they're in this particular situation, and then there's a change. If they, if they turn, if they repent, if they pray towards this house, towards the city or towards the land. So they find themselves in a sin, sin or a situation, and then after that, then they turn towards this house and they pray. And then there's a response. If you hear in heaven, then you forgive, then you maintain their cause. Now, this is overly simplified, but you start to see that pattern. It starts to not become so overwhelming. Then you're looking for what is the sin that they're asking for that is highlighted, the situation that they find themselves in. What are they then praying for God to be able to do? And then what is God's response to that prayer that they're asking in that particular situation? But again, it's oversimplified, but let's see if we can uh, get to see them in these seven pleas. The first is a plea for justice, a plea for justice found in verses 31 to 32. 
where Solomon prays and he says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven and act as judge and act, act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So here, here we see this situation. Solomon is acknowledging a scenario where someone has sinned against their neighbor. And then they are required to be able to take an oath in a legal or religious context. Now this is something that might be a little bit foreign to us. Uh, we might really only think of an oath as maybe an oath in an office that is taken, but here it's used in a judicial thing, and this is the practice that we see in uh, English common law that has influenced us, that it doesn't merely just come and stem from English law, that English law was often built and based upon biblical principles that are carried through. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually begins, actually has a whole chapter devoted to oaths and vows. Actually, that most of the Reformed creeds and confessions and catechisms, articles, whatever they might be, actually have some representation of what an oath is. It's a large part of the Reformation that they saw see fit, particularly uh, redeeming or reforming that from the practice which was carried on through the Catholic Church. But the Westminster Confession of Faith explains a lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein just upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. So here, here an oath is a what? Is a part of religious worship, and all worship is directed towards God and God alone. The Roman Catholic Church would introduce other means and mediations of how oaths might be made. You might make an oath, and, and instead of swearing upon God, you might swear upon some form of saint or some form of relic. They would put in the practice of placing their hand on a Bible, kissing the Bible, upholding the Bible, and saying that you're swearing upon the Bible rather than uh, making an oath before God. But here, an oath is a part of religious worship where upon just occasion, that there are specific occasions in Matthew chapter 5, uh, many Anabaptists and things in that tradition would take this upon themselves, Quakers, and they would say that Jesus forbids an oath to be taken. Well, that's not what Jesus ex is explaining. The practice back then was that the Pharisees and the scribes would swear upon many different things. They would swear upon the temple. They would swear upon Jerusalem, but they wouldn't swear to upon God's name. But that's not what the practice that we see throughout Scripture. It's not contradictory because God explains in Deuteronomy 6 that when you do swear, you swear upon God's name and God's name alone. But here, there, as an oath is asking for God to be your witness. Now, a vow is made before God and men, promising to do something, to carry something out. Now, it's all before God, but we do so in front of others, whereas an oath is particularly only made towards uh, God, that we're asking God to be a witness of what we either promise or what we assert, what we state as fact, and God would then judge us according to that truth or falsehood what we swear. Now, we see this 
in practice, even in uh, courts today, that when a witness takes a stand, they take an oath. And that oath might vary depending on what it is, and, and often many laws have been changed and adapted that they might not need to take an oath, but they might assert a promise. But here, this oath, which comes from this practice here, particularly in this passage here in in 1 Kings chapter 8, that here an oath is taken, and what he says here is that you condemn the guilty upon his own head and vindicate the righteous. There's twofold aspect of God serving as judge, not only condemning the guilty, but also vindicating the one who is taken that the conduct of his own head would form on the guilty and the vindication of the righteous, rewarding him with his righteousness. And here God is called as witness and also as judge of the statements of these oaths. Again, this is found in our system of law today. It's sworn into office. They're not making a promise to, uh, to carry on that principle of what, is, what was in the understanding of those founding fathers and the practice of English common law and things like this. They're not making a promise to the people to carry them out. They're making a promise to God that God would hold them accountable for how they act in their position that they have been placed in. In the PCA, we have a practice where uh, someone who is taking a stand in a judicial case is sworn in as a witness. The moderator asks this question, And do you solemnly promise in the presence of God that you will declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, according to the best of your knowledge in the matter in which you are called to witness, as you shall answer it to the great judge, to the living and the dead? So here, the oath is not to be made towards the people in the stand, not to, it's be to make, make towards God. That they're promising to declare the truth, but they're also promising that God would then judge them according to the statements of these truths. So I guess we, we could spend a lot more time on this. I've actually done quite a bit of research as there was a matter coming up in the uh, PCA which uh, seeks to be able to eliminate oaths from our um, practice. And, uh, but here's the first plea, that God says that, that here God would act as judge to condemn the guilty but also vindicate those who have been unjustly treated. The second plea that he has here is a plea for return. And you see this in verse 33 and 34. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. So this plea is a plea for returning. Here the situation that they find themselves in is Israel sins against God. Again, this is very important. That here is a practice that we understand that it's a sin against God. Why do the people of Israel get cast out and taken to Babylon? It is because they sin against God. And then because they sin against God, then the enemy comes in. They're defeated. Again, we see this practice throughout all of the scriptures that the people rebel, that people turn against God. They turn and worship false gods and false idols. And God then raises up other nations to come in to be able to punish or discipline uh, his son, Israel. But then there's a shift, right? They're, they're, they're rebelling against God. They're sinning against God. God ascends in this discipline. 
And then what happens is they turn again. They turn and acknowledge God's name. And again, this is what is said on this house, that it's how God's name is to dwell in this house. Though this house is where God dwells, but this house is also the place in where sins are atoned for. The holy God comes down to meet his people, and the people, the unholy people, get holified, you might say, sanctified, justified, because of their, the sacrifices that are made to be able to come and meet that holy God. But again, we need to understand that the key in all of this is that this house is a place of forgiveness. A house is a place where God comes that the people might be able to gather and meet with God. That here, the law does not require perfection. The law actually provides a way for sins to come and atone for. That repentance is the key. They find themselves in a sinful situation. They turn and acknowledge God's name. And then the prayer, the plea says that God hears in heaven. Again, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus said. This is a house of prayer. God dwells in heaven. But the tem- and the temple is merely a symbol of God's presence with his people. Heaven cannot, cannot even contain him. But here he comes down, voluntarily condescends. But then God forgives them. God brings them back. That what is cast out is brought back. The third is a plea for rain. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to the people as an inheritance. So here's the situation that they find themselves in. There is no rain in the land. Why? Because again, they have sinned against God. The, The second plea, the one that we just looked at, is that they sinned against God. God raises up enemies to come in. Here they sin against God. God uh, takes away, not enemies outside, but weather. But also note this, when, when you afflict them. Here God is afflicting his people. Sending affliction upon them because of their sin. Then what do they do? They sin, then they pray. They acknowledge and turn from their sin. Again, that, that understand the repetition here is that here the people sin, but then they turn and repent back to God. Again, repentance under, unto life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth while grief and hatred of his sin... Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Hear that this is uh, what it is a saving grace for believers. That it, once we become a believer, we don't come perfect, we still sin, but yet we still repent. The life of a Christian begins in repentance and continues with repentance until we need not repent anymore. That is when we're glorified. 
And so, too, these people, after they sin, that they turn to God and truly repent. God hears in heaven, He forgives the sin of His servants. But also notice at the end there, when you grant rain. When they walk in, they should walk and then grant rain upon your land. Again, this is their inheritance that God has given to them. They are merely just stewards. This is God's land in which they dwell. The fourth plea is a plea for the fear of the Lord in verses 37 to 40. If there is a famine in the land, if there is a pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his own hands towards this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, and that you may fe- they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So here, this situation is a very broad situation. The others are very, very specific. Here, the broad situation is famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, caterpillar, enemy besieges. Here are all these situations that come up. And yet, and then there's this affliction of his own heart. Whatever plea, whatever prayer made by man, or all the people of Israel. So here there's, a, there's an individual aspect, but also a national aspect as well. And here there's an individual aspect where God knows the person's heart. It's not, again, this outward looking of prayer, merely just carrying out these steps to be able to do this. There's an aspect where prayer is truly individual in the heart. To be able to cry for repentance, to be able to utter the right words is not some form of magic formula. It is truly a a remorse in the heart where we turn and repent, seeking God's mercy. And that's what we see again in verse 39. Then you hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. The God only knows the matter of the heart. As he points out that you know the hearts of all the children of mankind. That it's not some form of universal prayer that just is prayed, a formula which is uttered. That is truly based upon God knowing the hearts. Again, you go back to the oaths and understand what you're asking God to do. God is asking that you know that the truth is uttered. Only God knows if that truth is the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That they haven't missed something out, that they haven't negated something. Someone might be able to say, well, this is truth. 
Well, it might be truth, but it might not be the whole truth. They might be missing some important aspect or twisting or distorting it, saying it in some way. But here we're asking God to be able to do that. That it's applied to each person. But the outcome then is that they would fear God. All the days that they live in the land which you give their fathers. Again, there's this individual aspect to this. The fifth is a plea for all peoples to know God. In verse 41 to 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not one of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which your foreigner calls to, to, to you, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Do as do your people Israel, and that they may uh, know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So again, we have this situation here, a foreigner from an outside land that has never dwelt in Jerusalem, but he hears about God. His great name, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. And he comes and he answers the prayer as a request. Here, this is the very, the others are very specific, but here is not a very specific prayer that is prayed. It's not merely that here the foreigner is a sinner like in other times. But here the foreigner comes and worships God. Hears about who God is. Comes to his dwelling place. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. The purpose again of this is that more people might know who God is. That all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. That this house here is not merely just for God to be able to come and dwell with his people, his people to be sanctified, but the people from all over the land, from every nation, tribe, and tongue would be able to come and call upon God's name, that they might become his people. That more people would know and fear God. Again, the promise which is given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That here, God says that he will bless Abraham for those who bless him. He will dishonor those. God will curse. But here in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or in Psalm 22. To all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families and the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Often what was thought of is that Israel is some form of exclusive uh, group or sect. But it's not the case here. To give glory and to honor to God. Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, just to name a few. This is, a, this is Paul's argument in Romans. He explains that here the gospel message is to come forward. 
This mystery that was concealed is now revealed through Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ coming. The God called a foreigner Abraham, and he made him his, pers- his people. And so to this promise here in this prayer is this house would be that others might be able to know. Again, think about Christ coming into the temple, driving people out. In the court of the Gentiles. The sixth plea is a plea to, for, to maintain their cause in verse 44 and 45. Either people go out to battle, pray against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them. And they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Now, this seems a little bit similar to the second plea that we looked at. Here, though, it's a little bit different. The second plea is specifically for those who have been defeated in battle. But here, this plea is about those people going out to battle. They have not yet been defeated. But again, the situation is they're going out to battle. They're to turn and to pray towards the city and the house. And it is quite a simple outcome that they're seeking, that they're praying, that God would maintain their cause. That God would help them and assist them in this. The seventh plea and the largest plea is the plea for forgiveness and compassion. In verses 46 to 51. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to a land of their enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried, been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards the land, their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. But here, here we have the longest plea, the seventh and final one. Here the situation again, they sin against God. Again, Solomon mentions that no one is perfect. Again, this fundamental truth that is found throughout all of the Scripture, this is Paul's point throughout uh, the book of Romans, is that here, that no one is perfect. No one can keep the law. The law is a mirror that upholds and points to us our sin. Again, think about the sacrifices of the temple. The sacrifices of the temple prove this point. 
here there's an unholy people that need to uh, be made holy so that they might be able to dwell with God. Again, the law is not about perfection. The law is about uh, Christ being able to keep the law, fulfilling the law, that we might be able to have a sacrifice to be able to atone for our sin. But again, notice that the Lord is angry with his people. They sin against the Lord, and yet the Lord is angry with him. Again, Hebrews chapter 12, that the, the Lord is a, a loving father who disciplines their, his son. And again, notice that God hands them over to the enemy. Now, none of these things act outside of their control. It's not that uh, the other nations have a stronger God than them. It's God, in his sovereign power, allows this to happen. It's exactly what happens throughout the book of Judges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And as the Lord was, uh, had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them, that they were in terrible distress. Here, here they are, they're, they're, they're um, captive, they're exiled. They, they, they get taken over, the, the other nations come in. And not merely just in uh, Judah, but also in the northern kingdom, this promise comes true. But the key, the shift in all of this, is not merely that they undo what they, they, they just correct their ways, but they truly repent. Again, the repentance unto life. In 47 and 48, if they turn their heart to the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for your name. Here they understand that their sin, they understand that this is all because of their sin and how they turned away from God and, and didn't follow him. If they turn their hearts towards you and pray towards this house, we saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the great height of 1 Samuel chapter 7, true repentance. True repentance is not merely just saying sorry, the external words which uttered. It's a matter of the heart and of the soul. And in verse 50 and 53, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. Why would God forgive them? 
Not because they did a, did a good job repenting, but look at what Solomon says for, is the reason in verse 51. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Here, the reason is not forgive them because they're great at repenting. Forgive them because they've really changed their ways and they've changed their heart. Forgive them because of whatever you might fill in the blank. The reason God forgives them is because God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy and has compassion on whom he has compassion. Because of God's character, who he is, that that is the reason why he forgives them. Because they are your people. You are the ones who have saved them. They are your heritage. You are the one who have delivered them and saved them. Do it because of who you are, not who they are. And then Solomon finishes his prayer similar to how he begun in verse 52 and 53. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the nations of the earth to be your heritage as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. That's exactly how he began in verse 29. And the reason Solomon bases all of his pleas, again, is nothing to do with who the people are. Actually, it has everything to do with who they are not. Because all of them, most of them are based upon the people rebelling, turning and and rebelling against God. And yet, the plea is that God would have compassion on them, show them mercy. That God is the one who chose them and He is their God. That they are His heritage. You could look to Moses in Exodus chapter 9, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 19, Exodus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 9. We'll finish here with Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 25 and 29. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord he had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness for their sin, lest the land from which you have brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, because he hated them. He has brought them out, put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power, and by your outstretched arm. Again, Solomon is not merely just creating all these things, that this is the prayer of God's people from the beginning and the prayer for us even today. That we pray when we sin, we turn and pray to God that He would deliver us, that He would hear us, He would forgive us, that He would do so not because of who we are, but who He is, because of His promises, that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, and we belong body and soul to our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because of his mighty, his, his mighty hand, his grace, his mercy, he shows to us. There is never a point where we cannot go to the Lord and turn to him in prayer. 
There is never a point where we are far off in a distant land that God does not hear us in heaven and God does not forgive us. We pray to him and ask for mercy because of who he is. We turn and repent, truly repenting of our sin, not merely just externally with words saying we're sorry, but truly in our heart and our soul. Cry out that God would forgive us of our sins and transgressions. The great thing is that He hears us and He forgives us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.